Hello and welcome to the Media Law Podcast Newscast. I'm Colette and I'm with Tom and Paul to take you through the latest media law headlines. We have finally the end of the Wagatha Christie libel trial, various media law related announcements that came from the Queen's speech and a lewd advert from Adidas. However, I want to start with the promise of a new libel action from the food writer and activist Jack Monroe, who looks to be suing the Tory MP Lee Anderson over his allegations that they are making money off some of the most vulnerable people in society. The comments were made in an interview between Anderson and deputy leader of the Reclaim Party, Martin Dugney. Monroe has previous form of winning libel action and they were awarded £24,000 in damages after Katie Hopkins suggested Monroe approved the defacing of a war memorial during an anti-austerity demonstration in Whitehall in 2017. So far, all of this seems to be uh, purely on Twitter. Um, no claim, as far as we're aware, has been filed, but we will, of course, keep listeners updated if this claim continues through. This week saw the end of the Wagatha Christie libel trial between Rebecca Vardy and Colleen Rooney over accusations that Vardy was leaking Rooney's private Instagram stories to the Sun newspaper. I'm sure listeners have been following the various shenanigans that have been happening in the courts over the past week and a half, and so I won't take time to lay out any of the juicy details here. I want to instead pick up on um, a Guardian article that came out on conclusion of the trial that discussed what the trial shows about how we communicate in society and how that's changed um, and the potential that this change has for making defamatory accusations. Rather than taking her investigation's conclusions to a newspaper, Rooney published her original accusation against Vardy through her own social media accounts. We learned through the trial it was actually her brother who she asked to type out the notes and upload it to her Twitter. Much was made of the fact that she didn't follow standard journalistic practice in failing to give advance warning of her story to Rebecca Vardy. Now the Guardian piece went on to say that this reflects how English libel law isn't well equipped or or really prepared for the challenges that social media presents. And I just wondered, given the conversation we had last week with regard to uh, another Guardian article that came out about um, libel law stopping the publication of um, allegations against Jimmy Savile while he was still alive, Um, Do we think this is another example of libel laws being blamed for something that really isn't um, in their remits? And actually libel laws are well suited to um, social media accusations? Yes, English libel law uh, struggles with Twitter particularly, but social media generally. Because uh, libel law is hundreds of years old. That's the starting point. Um, And social media is a very, very recent uh, development. Um, When libel law had to cope with the emergence of mass print media, 
it created problems, problems that weren't resolved for decades until we eventually had the Reynolds defense in uh, the early 2000s emerge as a way of providing um, mass media publications with a defense for material published in the public interest, for example. Um, so it takes a long time for the common law to react to societal developments in ways that are coherent, if indeed they ever manage to produce anything coherent in response. Um, for me, one of the big issues that I'm seeing with social media posts, and this is something that I, I spoke about in the context of the uh, claim brought by Rachel Riley against the former Labour staffer, uh, Laura Murray, uh, around Christmas, um, which is when we got the judgment. Um, the issue of meaning and the way that meaning is dealt with, I think is becoming problematic. English libel law consistently strives to identify the single meaning, the one real meaning that a particular statement has. Um, and where you have such a wide variety of uh, lay people commenting on public affairs and thus being publishers in their own right and being read by tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people, and then reinterpreted and retweeted and commented upon. The idea that there is a single meaning underlying a potentially ambiguous statement seems to me to be increasingly detached from reality in a way that is not showing libel law in a good light. Um, so the, the statement at the heart of this case is the one made by um, Colleen Rooney, um, though, uh, uh, as you rightly say, Colette, apparently uploaded to Twitter by her brother, which you know just adds even more into this case. Um, but the statement following her investigation, which everyone knows about, where she gradually reduced the number of accounts that could view the stories she was putting on uh, Instagram until only one remained. Um, she put out the statement, it's Rebecca Vardy's account. Not it's Rebecca Vardy, but it's Rebecca Vardy's account. But when the decision was made about the meaning of the statement, the then Mr. Justice Warby, now Lord Justice Warby, ruled in the High Court that the statement meant that Rebecca Vardy was responsible. Not that her account was responsible, that somebody else who might have had access to her account was responsible, but that she was personally responsible. And that this was the one and only possible meaning that libel law would now take, cogn uh, would now take cognizance of. So that's the meaning that has to be proved true if the defense of truth is to succeed. The problem I have with this is that it seems to me to be an ambiguous statement. It's Rebecca Vardy's account could be interpreted in multiple ways, including the ways that the defendant initially uh, argued for. And when libel law 
insists on picking only one meaning, it's doing something artificial. But let's think about the purpose of libel law. The purpose of libel law is to protect a person's real reputation against the harm it is really likely to suffer. It's not supposed to be dealing with artificial possibilities. It's supposed to be dealing with what's really out there. And if it can't take cognizance of multiple meanings, but has to insist that there is only one, um, then it seems to me it's going to run into more and more problems in the Twitter age. We saw it with Riley and Murray, and now we've seen it in this uh, Wagatha Christie case. Um, Previously on this, I've confined my comments to uh, the issue of whether a statement is one of fact or opinion. I haven't yet decided whether I'm uh, going to uh, go for, in a predatory way, the single meaning rule generally. But it is now in my thoughts that it may be the root of the problem um, that I've identified. More work to be done on it, and it may well be that as I, hopefully, once I'm done with academic marking season, find a little bit of time to sit down and actually do some more research into this. Because I've never actually sat down and spent a, a sustained period of time reading the literature on the single meaning rule. Um, or at least I haven't since I was a postgrad. Um, it may well be that I think that actually there, 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 there are good reasons for what it does, but... At the moment, it seems to me to be causing problems. Uh, my instinct is it's causing problems, and there might be a better way. Yeah, the, well, the artificiality within the uh, uh, the, the single meaning rule um, is something we've talked about for on on the podcast for a, for a while now, and and since at least the decision in Stocker and Stocker which uh, regular listeners will know I don't like to talk about because it just upsets me so. Um, but the the only way to sort of resolve it, I think, is is to treat it as uh, a legal rule rather than a logical outcome. Um, that judges have to make decisions based on information and uh, reach decisions about what what occurred. Um, we see this in criminal cases all the time. Judges have to decide whose evidence they, they prefer, not just uh, criminal cases, of course, civil cases as well. Um, so in that sense, there's an artificiality that runs through the entirety of law in that judges have to reach conclusions on contested positions and move forward from there. The fact that they have have reached that decision does not retrospectively change what has happened. But we um, live with that on the basis of proof that unless we can prove otherwise, we leave it to the judge to to decide what uh, what has occurred. I think that I think where the um, single meaning rule becomes incredibly artificial, or most artificial is that um, the, the, the disconnect that sometimes occurs and does occur in cases between the outcome, the stringency of the single meaning rule and logic. So Stocker and Stocker is the perfect example. The idea that a judge pronounced on what it means to say he tried to strangle me. 
and to say, well, of course, that means this, and it only means this. And that was the thing that infuriated me so with Stocker and Stocker that, that actually the, the conclusion reached by the court just struck me as being at odds with logic because it seemed equally plausible to reach the opposite position. So for the court to say, well, if someone says he tried to strangle me, that doesn't mean that uh, he, that doesn't mean he tried to kill me. Well, of course it does. It can easily mean that. Um. So I I share um, Tom's reservations here. I'm just not convinced that anything can be done about it. Yeah, I've come around even to Paul's view on Stocker and Stocker. Um, because, yeah, well, you know, I've been thinking about meaning more. And I didn't, it, I hadn't at the time been focusing on the malleability of language, anything like as much as I have been, which I should have been. Um, so... The difference between this sort of case and the kind of criminal case, perhaps in which we're saying a judge has to make a decision between two people's evidence and decide what happened, is that in those sorts of cases, one thing happened, right? You know, either defendant stabbed the victim or defendant did not stab the victim. Um, not both. Defendant did not both stab and not stab the victim. Depends um, if it's true. Not in the multiverse. Um, but. Language doesn't work that way. Language can have multiple meanings because it has no single immutable meaning. That's not the way that language works. Nothing ever has an objective meaning. Meaning is brought to language, if this isn't getting too deeply abstractly philosophical, meaning is brought to language by those who experience it, by its audience. Right? So, you know, when you read a novel, it's the reader who brings the meaning to the words on the page and thus brings them to life. Um, with that being the case, the decision is fundamentally a different one in a, a, a case that revolves around language. And libel is pretty unique in our uh, legal system as revolving exclusively around the use of language, always. I don't know what knock-on effects would be for, say, contract law, which also revolves around language quite a lot. Um, you know, I've only thought of it about it in the context of uh, of libel law, though, of course, the meaning of contracts is, is another thing that would be uh, vulnerable to this sort of critique. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think it is fundamentally a, a different order of decision making when you're dealing with something that cannot simply be boiled down to a single objective fact. So do you do away with meaning or do you introduce multiple meanings into the analysis? Very good question. I don't know. I suspect something closer to the latter, that there must be a way to acknowledge the existence of multiple possible meanings and maybe, uh, you know, weight one's measure of harm towards the likelihood of a particular size of audience coming to a particular understanding of a statement. But um, maybe we just have to think more about the opportunities that uh, claimants have to tell their side of the story, um, to open it up to, um, to open up those possibilities for refutation and self-help remedies. I, I don't know what the answer is um, at this point. I will have to think about it. It behooves us all as academics in the field to think about how this problem can be resolved because it's not going away. In the social media age, it's going to get worse. I just wonder, is, is it really 
giving the claimants more of an opportunity to explain or is there do we need to move towards some sort of system that allows readers to provide evidence so if we are looking at what how audiences interpret it and they provide meaning to any statement especially in the social media age then that seems to be a point of analysis that isn't currently being scrutinized yeah possibly yeah possibly I don't know how you do that. um I don't know, bringing comments in, bringing like Twitter comments in, retweets, et cetera, to see how... Yeah, I think it's evidence. I mean, the, the, the responses that you get on social media are evidence of the way in which the statement has been interpreted. Um, and there has been, if I'm not much mistaken, some acknowledgement of that in the courts. It was referred to by Mr. Justice Nicklin in the Riley case, um, not quite for that purpose, because at that point, meaning had already been established in a preliminary hearing, but in the judgment, in, in terms of the how widespread the allegation was and um, how many people had you know, plumped for one meaning rather than another, it was mentioned, which actually suggested the judge was aware, and I'm absolutely certain the judge was aware, that... Um, the statement could be interpreted in multiple ways. It's just that the law does not allow for the statement to be interpreted in multiple ways by the judiciary for the purpose of assigning it to meaning, which then defendant can then try to set out to prove the truth of. And this is where I start to come back to what I said in Riley and Murray, which is the focus on proving something true because you've decided the meaning is an allegation of fact, as opposed to the meaning is an assertion of an opinion on an ambiguous statement meaning um, is problematic. And that's where I think these two issues are, 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 are very much linked. On the theme of multiple meanings, uh, perhaps now is a good time to move on to the conversation that Tom had with friend of the pod, Alex Antonio, about the new Adidas adverts and the issues that it's run into with the Advertising Standards Agency. Tom, take it away. So I'm joined now by a friend of the podcast, Alex Antonio, the University of Essex, regular contributor here. Uh, hi, Alex. Nice to have you. Hi, Tom. Thanks for inviting me. It's really, really nice to be back. So this case, uh, at the Advertising Standards Agency, is about uh, the Adidas advert that, uh, as I understand it, I think was mainly circulated on social media featuring uh, uh, a number of pictures of um, bare women's breasts. Um, could you just give us a, a bit of background on it? Of course. Well, um, these were ads that were first seen in February 2022, but the ban came in a few days ago. So there were two strands, essentially, in this campaign, which showed women's bare breasts. You had social media posts, and then you had about 20 images, a campaign that ran across Twitter, Instagram. And then you also had two physical posters with over 60 women featuring. And these were um, cropped images. Instead of showing, say, a bit of cleavage, you had advertisements that featured pairs of bare breasts. But you had various skin colors, various shapes, various shapes, various um, sizes. All of these were in grid format. Some of them were scarred, some of them were small. 
but all of them were uncovered. Now, a couple of the social media posts, I think one post, um, had the nipples obscured by pixelation. Now, uh, essentially what Adidas was trying to do with this was that, well, the message essentially was, um, we know uh, breasts are diverse, and this is why our new sports bra um, has different styles to fit everyone. So, in other words, perhaps, you know, one might say it was about celebrating uniqueness or body, uh, different body shapes, or perhaps inclusivity. Um, but there were complaints. Um, the ASA, the Advertising Standards Authority, um, which is the UK's regulator for advertising across all media, uh, received 24 complaints. And you could see two major themes there. You had people who complained about uh, the fact that, or at least they, they felt that the ads um, objectified and sexualized women. And then the second strand, the second theme that emerged was um, harm to children. In other words, that it was not appropriate for children to see, especially when it comes, when it came to the posters, the physical posters, um, because they were untargeted and could be seen by people of all ages. So that was essentially, you know, what was the ad um, about and what were the complaints? Uh, I don't know whether it is worth reminding your audience um, very briefly the rules that applied there. Yeah. Okay, so um, essentially the rules here are found under section four of the Code of Advertising, um, which are essentially about uh, harm and offense. Briefly speaking, they say that marketing communications must not contain anything that's likely to cause serious or widespread offense. Now, there's no definition about what um, serious or widespread offense is or what harm there means, what, 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 what could be harmful in this context. But what we do know is that um, the ASA usually takes a contextual approach. They look at different factors, uh, the medium on which they add appeared, the likely audience, what's the product, and, of course, the prevailing societal standards. Now, in their ruling, the ASA conceded that, well, this is not about sexualization, this is not about objectification. Um, it conceded that the ads were not overtly sexual, and I think, to an extent, that was a sensible approach, which is in line with their previous rulings. So you have, for example, um, you know, uh, the usual uninspired ads where, for example, advertisers or marketers want to sell fast food, and then you have a bunch of busty models uh, that sell or eat burgers in bikinis, or perhaps you are selling ice cream, and then what you have, you have a slow motion shot of um, ice cream dripping down um, a, a woman's chest. Now, in those cases, the ASA says, well, you know, um, this is um, the, the, the product and the sexual element are not related. Um, therefore, this is um, uh, not acceptable. Um, they, they are a little bit more tolerant when it comes to lingerie or perfumes, but that doesn't necessarily mean that any amount of sexualization or nudity uh, will be acceptable. Uh, but they said that although sexualization or objectification was not here the, the, the key issue, we were not concerned about this, they said that this is a slightly different case. What you have, you had explicit nudity in those images, 
Um, the breasts were not the main focus of the arts. Um, less emphasis was placed on the bras themselves, the advertised product, that is, because there was accompanying text which was saying, well, um, this is the reason we didn't make just one new sports bra. But the product didn't feature in those images. It was just the uh, bare breasts. So that was one thing. They said that explicit nudity is at issue here. And then the second thing was that uh, it was not um, carefully, the, the ads were not carefully targeted. Although the posters didn't appear close to schools or any religious venues, it was felt that um, they, they could be seen by um, children of all ages uh, and therefore they could cause uh, widespread offence. Um, it may be interesting to highlight here that although the ad was banned because it was found in breach of Section 4, um, Twitter decided to keep the tweets up, so they are still available on social media, although uh, the, the posters are probably likely to uh, go down. Um, I, I'm not sure whether I missed anything here that um, you feel it's important and I haven't considered in terms of giving an overview of that yeah, no, I think that's a, a very comprehensive background. So uh, I think I just want to ask, you know, you are uh, very much an expert in this field of uh, advertising, but also um, a, an expert on uh, obscene publications and offensive material generally. Um, what, what's your reaction to this decision? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I, I thought it was an interesting um, advertisement, one of those perhaps rare advertisements that really divide opinion. So you could have, for example, you know, um, you could have people who would think here that, well, this may be objectification, which is masked as liberation. But also you could have the other opinion, which is about perhaps, you know, the, the ad celebrating body diversity. It, it doesn't uh, sexualize, it desexualizes, perhaps normalizes breasts, and it's not exploitative of a woman's body. Now, your your audience here may recall that a few years back, I think it was 2020, 2012, we had this campaign that was initiated by an American actress uh, on social media with a hashtag, uh, free the nipple. And, you know, the, the key message of that campaign was, well, you know, the... Uh, women's nipples uh, shouldn't be automatically sexualized and that context uh, when it comes to nudity is very, very important. So you could have like, you know, different opinions on this. It may be worth perhaps, you know, looking at, you know, the comments uh, at the bottom of the ads on social media and you could have, you had a diversity of comments there. Uh, you had, for example, people that uh, said, well, I, I was caught off guard and I found this confusing or um, uh, other people would, would prefer to see the bras versus the breasts. But there were also other people who um, kind of were more aligned with, you know, what Adidas was trying to do. And they were saying, for example, well, you're very bold. We applaud you. Uh, thank you for showing more brown breasts than the average health textbook one uh, noted. But I suppose here the... One one thing that struck me, and I thought perhaps you know the ASA was not um, very unreasonable. At least this decision was to an extent in line with its previous reasoning and its previous rulings. 
was that fine, okay, well, some degree of nudity is acceptable uh, when it's neither explicit, it's not sexualized, then it's less likely that it will be considered problematic, even if it is featuring in untargeted media. But here, I thought, um, Adidas was trying to make nudity relevant, and then I didn't think that you know, this would be acceptable by the ASA. There was, um, if you really think about it, uh, what was the purpose of the advertisement, of an advertisement, is to sell products and highlight, you know, what a product can do. But here on those images, we didn't have the product featuring at all. You'd have, um, you know, only text was saying, we are here to highlight why perhaps tailored support is paramount. But as an average consumer, well, probably I'm not a representative consumer, but an average consumer of brass doesn't necessarily need help to understand why tailored support is, is, is important. And what they want to see is how the product um, serves their needs or meets the objectives of that. But the product was missing, was missing here. So it, there's a question here as to whether there was a voyeuristic feel in the ad and whether the Adidas was just trying to make nudity relevant to the ads. Alex Antonio, thanks very much. Thank you for inviting me. The Queen's speech was delivered to the House of Commons on the 10th of May 2022 and revealed a number of legislative changes that could affect UK media, data protection and internet law. We've identified five bills in particular that are worth mentioning. The first is the Draft Digital Markets Competition and Consumer Bill, which could ultimately require Google and Meta to pay news outlets for the contents that they host on their platforms. The second is the Online Safety Bill, which aims to make the UK the safest place in the world to be online, while safeguarding freedom of expression and protecting journalistic content. We'll have a fuller episode on the Online Safety Bill when it comes out, but for now it's worth mentioning that the fact it's in the Queen's speech shows that publication is imminent. The third is the Media Bill, which will enable the government to sell Channel 4, repeal Section 40 of the Crime Crime and Courts Act 2013, and give Ofcom the power to regulate streaming companies like Netflix. The fourth is the Data Reform Bill, which aims to reduce, and I quote, the burdens faced by data handling companies under laws like the GDPR. And finally, the introduction of a new Bill of Rights, which promises to deliver the long-standing Tory pledge to replace the provisions of the Human Rights Act. So I want to come back to the Media Bill first. Um, and get Paul's thoughts on Section 40, as I know Hacked Off had a response to this uh, after the the delivery of the Queen's speech. Section 40 of the Crime and Courts Act 2013 forces news publishers to pay both sides legal costs in defamation and privacy cases, no matter their outcome, unless the publishers are members of a Royal Charter compliant press regulator. Paul, perhaps you could summarise for us Hacktoff's position. Okay, so section right, so section forty has a sort of checkered history, but it, it was never it was never given a, a sort of fair hearing. Section forty of the Crime and Courts Acts, uh, two thousand and thirteen, is a complex cost shifting provision. 
um, that was justified or could be justified by its objectives. Um, what uh, Section 40 was trying to do was to ensure that uh, in media law disputes, the individuals concerned, both the claimants and the defendants, had access to uh, cheap and effective means of resolving conflict, ideally through arbitration. Now, exactly the same sentiments are being expressed in a different context by this same government. That context is uh, what's known as SLAPS, Strategic Litigation Against Public Participation. Of course, it's only been articulated in one way at the moment by this government, which is this idea that oligarchs, i.e. Russian emigres, are using English courts to suppress criticisms of them. Uh, Legitimate criticisms is is the implication um, by journalists uh, either writing, well, typically writing alone um, and and publishing their ideas either on blogs uh, or, or in books. So Section 40, which was brought about in the aftermath of Leveson, was already alive to the fact that newspapers were engaging in exactly this type of uh, hostile um, suppression of uh, individuals who criticised them, um, this um, this sort of unfair treatment of, of individuals by using uh, the press's superior bargaining power um, to um, intimidate, harass, prevent uh, claims from being brought. Um, Section 40 uh, was uh, described by the press almost unanimously as, a, as, as an immense threat to press freedom, uh, as something that was going to bring about the end of the world as, as, as we knew it, um, that it represented government uh, interference with speech, Etc. Uh, Etc. Et so all kinds of dooms, doomsday scenarios, um, and and so it was quickly canned by. Um, although it was put uh, into a statute, the the provision itself was never brought into force, um, so it didn't uh, it uh, it couldn't be relied upon uh, in a court. Um, the argument for section forty has not gone away. Um, Although a body like IPSO, the Independent Press Standards Organisation, which is the sort of main uh, regulator of newspapers for for those national and regional titles that have signed up to it, uh, you'll remember that the Guardian, the Independent and the Financial Times exists outside any kind of uh, external regulatory regime. Um, But for those uh, publishers, IPSO does have an arbitration scheme. Um, which at some point someone is going to point out that that of itself removes the need for Section 40. Except it doesn't, because when you look at the terms of the arbitration scheme, you see that it's still stacked in favour of publishers. For example, Ipso decides who can go on the list as an arbitrator. And the terms of arbitration are still uh, favourable uh, and are still not subject to independent scrutiny 
uh, in a way that we would like. So there are still concerns there. The other, the other issue about Ipso's arbitration scheme is that no one uses it. Uh, it's had it for a few years now. It's had a handful of arbitration uh, cases. Uh, I think at the last count, it's something like three or four. It's it's not used at all. So the the problem still exists. Newspapers are able to scare people into submission, and the um, uh, the threat of uh, having to pay not only one's own costs of going to court, uh, but also your opponent's costs mean that for the vast amount of people, um, relying on the legal system to enforce your rights is just not a viable uh, a viable option. Um, so, the, so the underlying um, premise for uh, Section 40 still exists. The justification for it still exists. Um, it, it is constantly misdescribed by the press, of course, as this draconian measure that means that newspapers will have to pay costs regardless of whether um, they win their claim or not. That is not what Section 40 actually says, but of course no one stops to read Section 40. What Section 40 says and what it's intended to do is to give the judge the opportunity to award costs against the newspaper, even if it wins, if the judge is satisfied that the other party was deprived of the opportunity to use a cheap and efficient means of settling this dispute without going to court. So if it was deprived of the opportunity to use an arbitration scheme, so this is where the recognised regulator comes in. But that analysis requires a court to be satisfied that this was a case that couldn't have been resolved through, um, sorry, this is a case that could have been resolved through arbitration. Um, if it thinks that actually this was a complicated case, a case that involved novel points of law, for example, then Section 40 wouldn't apply. Um, because you're not depriving anyone by going to uh, through the courts because of the complexity of the case. Can I get your thoughts then on the current anti-slap laws in the UK? Because it seems to me then that Section 40 is no threat to the press, provided there are strong anti-slap laws. Yeah, so Section, section 40 isn't the uh, ideal solution um, to slaps, it, it sort of would deal with certain types of slaps type cases uh, where a newspaper was the defendant. And of course, that's not the uniform uh, experience. The problem with slaps, of course, is that um, there, there is an evidential his- issue here. It's a bit like cancel culture. Um, people talk about cancel culture in the same way they talk about slaps, but people are sort of assuming this phenomenon exists uh, without actually stopping to, to look at the, uh, to look at the detail. Um, uh, A provision like section 40, of course, um, removes uh, a lot of the concerns about, about slaps because what section 40 is trying to do is to ensure that superior bargaining power can't be brought to bear immediately on forcing someone to settle a case or to withdraw uh, information um, by providing the means to decide the case 
cheaply and efficiently. So in terms of slaps, the question is whether we could have something like a Section 40 um, to deal uh, with that kind of uh, scenario where the defendant is an individual, an individual journalist, uh, for example, um, a Carol Cadwallader type speaking at a TED talk um, or the the author of Kleptocracy, whose, whose name I, I now can't remember. Can I also say on slaps, just because it relates to what we were saying about meaning earlier, um, one way in which you could deal with the slap phenomenon to the extent that it is problematic would be to recognize that a far larger number of defamatory statements that are made are, in fact, assertions of opinion rather than statements of fact because they are interpreting the words or actions of another person that could be interpreted in multiple ways. If this were recognized and we we didn't then have a situation where truth was the primary defense but rather honest opinion was the primary defense, it is a less difficult defense to uh, succeed with. It is still not easy. There has to be a factual basis for the opinion. Um, But it's a more straightforward defense. It would provide a defense in more of these cases because its uh, elements are easier to satisfy. Uh, and, And thus, I think you would reduce the extent of the slap problem, whatever that extent truly is. Um, and this would be a far easier way. Uh, it would require far less change than the government is talking about and to, to respond to um, these uh, strategic lawsuits. Before we move on to the Bill of Rights, I want to briefly mention that there has been some concern over the Data Reform Bill, also mentioned in the Queen's speech, um, with regards to the impact this could have on the EU adequacy agreements. The EU Commission has warned that if the UK government pushes ahead with its more revolutionary reforms, such as undermining data protection regulators' independence, then the Commission may have to reconsider and potentially withdraw the adequacy ruling. Now, the new Bill of Rights uh, will obviously get its own episode uh, when the time comes. Um, For now, I think it's worth just mentioning again some of the things that we've spoken about in previous newscasts with regard to the Ministry of Justice's apparent confusion over what freedom of expression really means um, with regard to press freedom and and protest law. Um, Perhaps Tom you could give listeners a refresher. Sure. Well, the first thing it's important to say is that uh, the Conservative Party has had the Human Rights Act in its sights for a very long time. Well over a decade, the the Tories have consistently um, told us that they want rid of the Human Rights Act. Um, I think they are the first party that... I can think of that has run on a platform for election of vote for us and we will take away your rights. All these nasty pesky rights you have by virtue of being human, we'll get rid of them and we will replace them with a bill of rights, which um, 
I mean, I don't even understand the terminology. For, why, why this obsession with doing all things American? Um, uh, in, in this country, a bill is something you have before it becomes an act of parliament. So presumably it becomes the act of rights. And then that just is, that doesn't have the same ring to it. Either that or you have to have the Bill of Rights Act, which presumably beforehand is the Bill of Rights Bill, um, which should be the title for a cartoon. Um, so the background is the Conservatives have been trying to get rid of this legislation for a long time. Um, we could speculate forever and a day about what the reasons for that are. I suspect there are many of them. But one of the big reasons is that their friends in the press don't like Article 8 of uh, the European Convention on Human Rights. Um, that said, their friends in the press very much like Article 10 of the European Convention on Human Rights. And thus they end up in the situation where they'd quite like to get rid of some of it, but not all of it. Hence the idea to replace it with something that sounds a little bit similar, but will which will skew um, the rights in certain directions. No doubt about that. They will be skewed um, against uh, individuals, they will be skewed against minorities, they will be skewed particularly against uh, immigrants of all sorts, uh, especially uh, asylum seekers. The right to protest will be substantially curtailed. Um, we already know there, there, there is already legislation in the works that will do this, um, and, and a repeal of the HRA that makes it possible for that legislation then to stand and to operate. Um, so there's, 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 there's going to be a real watering down of um, the rights of individuals to express themselves, um, but a strengthening of the rights of big media bodies that the government is uh, friends with uh, to defame them, to invade their privacy, and so on and so forth. That's what this will end up being. Um, and uh, every government spokesperson that you will see on the television will deny this, um, but if this legislation goes through, then in uh, the next three, four, five, six years, uh, that is the effect that we will all feel. Uh, I have no doubt about that whatsoever. Um, the big contradiction, which I've already uh, identified, as you rightly say, Colette and earlier news guest at the heart of all this, uh, is when the government talks about the need to strengthen free speech but curtail protest. And what they mean is, to strengthen the right kind of speech, the speech of their friends, uh, not the awkward speech from people that want to um, push the government in a direction they don't want to go in, um, like cutting dependencies on fossil fuels, like improving um, the state of our democracy, um, like resigning over things that ought to be resigned over. These are the sorts of protests the government don't like. Um, they're the sorts of protests that no government body likes, and it doesn't have to be a conservative government. Um, if, if you look at the, um, the city of Sheffield, um, which has had a Labour council for as long as anybody can remember, and its response, along with South Yorkshire police, to um, direct action protests around the mass felling of trees in Sheffield by a private contractor over the last few years, where something in the region of 4,000 trees have been felled, most of them um, ones that had historically lined uh, streets where people had grown up. Um, direct action protests there, which were as small as, uh, in terms of their interference with others' lives as some pensioners going and standing round a tree that had been at the bottom of their garden um, on the street for uh, decades. 
um, these people were arrested, subject to injunctions, um, injunctions that were then enforced by the police with more and more arrests, threats of jail time. Um, why? Because these protests were an annoyance to a private contractor. Um, and we should say this is the same council who refused to release unredacted uh, copies of the contract that they had signed with this private contractor. My point is simply this. Protests are disruptive things. They challenge the status quo. Anything that challenges the status quo is disruptive. And by definition, a protest challenges the status quo, because if it wasn't the status quo, people wouldn't be protesting against it. Legislation designed to make it harder to protest benefits only those who have an interest in maintaining the status quo, thus the relevant government, whether that be local, national, doesn't matter. Um, political speech, one might think, is of one of the highest orders of importance for speech to protect. But that is not the kind of speech that the proposed legislation will protect. What will be protected will be reports in mass media, um, major publications, traditional print media publications that defame people, that invade their privacy, um, whilst democratic participation is just left to... Yeah, I'll... I'll Adds to uh, everything that Tom has just said because I agree. Unsurprisingly, I agree entirely. I mean, the 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 uh, attack, the sustained attack on uh, human rights perpetrated by uh, this uh, present government in um, in collusion uh, with the mainstream press, particularly the Murdoch press. Um, th- this is the central plank in the populist agenda uh, of these two institutions that represent uh, not uh, the average person, uh, but in fact uh, an elite, an elite that has successfully convinced, it seems, the average person that there is another elite out there that is against them, and this first elite is actually uh, on their side. And such has been their success uh, that they have been able to convince a substantial population, substantial proportion of the population, uh, that what in fact have been the sources of socialism in this country and socialist uh, policies um which has been the European Union and many of the European Union policies that have come to bear in the UK, particularly in the new labor under new labor, things like the working time directive, um, national minimum wage. They've been able to convince this uh, population to do away with uh, the control of that socialist agenda um, so that and, and to replace it with a body that doesn't care about socialism. Uh, in any any uh, form whatsoever, but there's something odd about our culture in this country that we must be few. We must be one of the f- few. Perhaps we're on our own 
the only sort of mature democracy, liberal democracy, that actually has a problem with rights, rights in all the different forms. Look at our cultural response to things like health and safety. We see health and safety protections as an inconvenience. We see it as a nuisance. Because we don't remember, we have no collective memory of a time before health and safety. So we don't remember what Victorian society had to go through, for example. We don't remember uh, what it would have been like to have to work down a mine as a child or up a chimney. We don't remember what it was like to exist in a society that didn't have a national health system, that didn't protect and allow individuals to have holidays that were paid in their absence. We don't remember what it was like to have a right to uh, sick pay because all of these things just exist. But the only reason they exist is because people fought for a broad range of rights, some of which are captured in the Human Rights Act and some of which aren't. And um, those are the rights that are at stake. We have fallen into the trap, I think, of, of believing that the Human Rights Act only protects the rights of people that don't deserve it, but in any event, the rights of people who aren't us. And actually, they do protect our rights. Privacy, in particular, is a right that all of us are entitled to and all of us rely upon. There's definitely more to say uh, with regard to whether the doctrine of misuse of private information will outlive any repeal to HRA, but I think that's a discussion that's best reserved for another episode, another time. For now, that brings us to a nice conclusion of this newscast. Thank you very much, Tom and Paul, for your brilliant insights, as always. Thanks, Colette. Thanks, Colette. As ever, follow us on social media, and we will be back with more newscasts in the weeks to come. Thanks very much. Bye.